Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. This is your host, Joe Sibilia, and joining me today is a legendary friar. He's an Emmy and Tony Award-winning comedy writer whose credits include Saturday Night Live as one of the show's original writers, and it's Gary Shandling's show, which he co-created. He's a playwright. You may know his work from uh, the one-man show Billy Crystal, performed in called 700 Sundays. And he also is the author of a great book called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. And his name is Alan Zweibel. Alan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, thank you for joining me. You know, I've known about you uh, just about uh, since the time I've wanted to become a friar because you've been a friar seemingly forever. And I know that when you were (laughs) (laughs) forever for me, I'm like an embryo, so you can't take it from me. Um, No, it's amazing because when I joined, I guess it was 83, 84, somewhere in there, I was the youngest one. And, and now, <laughs> now I'm like this ancient guy. You know, I don't know. How, I don't know how that happened. Hardly. I guarantee you, you're more youthful than me. Reading from your uh, book about your exploits playing basketball with Gary Shandling, I haven't been on a basketball court since the last day I ever had to take physical education. So, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, those games were great. Gary would host uh, basketball games at his house on Sunday, and. Whoever was around, you know, played in them, you know, um, you know, Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow and Franken was in them and Bob Costas and um, Kevin Nealon. It was fun. And we didn't talk about work. We didn't talk about comedy. We didn't talk about our projects. It was just sort of a relief for those couple of hours just to play basketball and, and, and try to be guys, you know. <laughs> well, I, I want to get into all that with you, but before I get too far away, I know that uh, you were writing for Morty Gunty back when you started. You were a young guy trying to break into comedy. Uh, you were writing for a lot of the Catskill comics, and they would bring you to the Friars Club, as I understand it. Now, how did you go from being just a visitor to the Friars to becoming a member in 1983? Well, what happened was it was very simple in a sense. Um, it, it was either Morty Gunty or Freddie Roman who first took me there, okay? And But they all did. And uh, Dick uh, Capri and, um, uh, you know, people like that. And um, I, I used to hang out in the bar, and I would sell jokes for $7 a joke. That was the going rate. This is 1972, 73. And um, then when I got the the gig, you know, as one of the original writers on SNL, that was in 75, we started the show. I would still go back to the Friars Club, always as a guest, because I I wasn't a member. I had a manager named Dave Jonas, who managed all the Catskill comedians. And um, I always had an affection for the place, even though I was on this show, which was like the made fun of or was parodying you know, the comedy of the guys in in the Friars Club. It was a new school of comedy that we were creating. And um, uh, obviously the Catskills, those comedians were the older school. But I always had an affection and a warm spot in my heart for it. Um, when I left SNL in 1980, I no longer had an office. 
I, um, in, in the, what was then called the RCA building where NBC is. So I got married and I worked at home for a while. But when we had our first child and babies tend to cry, uh, I needed a place to go, place to write. So the Friars Club, I was familiar with, with it enough to know that on the third floor, there was a room with a lounge. It had a, a big screen TV. It had a newspaper rack. It had a, a couch, you know, and had phones. And I joined the Friars, and I used that room as an office. That's where I would go and write during the day. And when I was done with my morning write, I would go downstairs into the uh, dining room. If you walked into the big dining room, the first table on the right was this oversized round table. And that's where all the comics were. That's where um, Red Buttons and uh, Joey Adams and Alan King and uh, whoever you know, of those guys were in town, you know, they would sit at that table. And I used to sit with an earshot of it so I could hear them bitch and moan about some guy in 1930 who gave him a bad review in Kansas City. It was hilarious, okay? <laughs> they would just sit there complaining about stuff. And then I go back upstairs after lunch and I complete my day's work. Would other people go to the Friars and use it essentially for the same purposes that you were using it, more or less as an office space? No, not that I know of because I didn't see anybody else in that lounge I was in. I got pretty lonely. <laughs> you know, most of my friends who were writers, you know, they were in L.A. and they were working from home or they were working on shows and they you know, they had offices. But like I said, there was a period of time between the time that I left SNL and then um, co-created his Gary Shandling show, which we did on the um, on the West Coast, although Gary and I wrote a lot of the pilot script. At the Friars Club. As I understand it, your relationship with Gary Shanley began at the Friars Club. I got the phone call from Bernie, who represented Gary and me. Okay, it was Brillstein Gray. Brad Gray represented uh, Gary. Bernie represented me. But the two of them were working together, Brillstein and Gray. And Bernie called me, and he didn't ask me to to do anything with it's Gary Shandling's show because we hadn't even thought about it. I didn't even know Gary. Gary was doing a, a special for Showtime. He played a talk show host, and it was the 25th anniversary of this fictitious show. Bernie had said, look, uh, they need a set of fresh eyes. They sent me this script. I called back Bernie, and I said, I think I can help this. So they flew me out to L.A., and I wrote things for it, for Gary, with Gary. And that's where we developed a friendship slash relationship. So while I was out there doing this, we got to know each other. And he had an idea for a TV show where he played himself and spoke to camera. And I had an idea for a TV show. Being a writer, um, I wanted to do my version of the Dick Van Dyke show where the head of the family, who was a comedy writer, also spoke to camera. So we talked about it, and we melded the two ideas together. Hence, it's Gary Shandling's show. And then when we came, uh, Gary would come back east, and he'd stay at some hotel. When we sort of, like, plotted out what the pilot script would be, before he went back to California, 
we we had a couple of lunches at the Friars Club, and we started, like I said, beating out the script. Then Gary went back to L.A., and we just swapped scenes back and forth. And I used to, he used to mail them. It was great. Back then, wow, this is how long ago it was, we would FedEx it, right, so you get it the next day. But then all of a sudden we heard of this thing that FedEx had, and it was called Zap Mail at the time, where the other person, no matter where they were, would get it within three hours. And we were, how, how, how did that happen, right? Well, it, it was the first fax machines, okay? They called it Zap Mail. So I would be at the Friars, okay? And then I would write a scene. I'd go to the nearest FedEx place and send him. Three hours later, he would call me at the Friars to talk about the scene that I had just written and vice versa with the scenes that he wrote. So were you instrumental, Alan, in bringing a lot of people of your generation, people like Gary Shandling, Billy Crystal, Richard Lewis, into the Friars Club in the first place? Well, some of those people, Shandling hadn't been there till I brought him there. Steve Martin, uh, Marty Sh- Martin Short, I sponsored. Um, I'm trying to think who else I brought around. I want to say, oh, Dave Barry. Uh, it never became a friar because he lives in Florida, but I brought him there a number of times. Give me a little bit more time. I'll think of other people of my generation who was part of my crowd. I brought Dan Aykroyd there. I used to take Gilda there all the time. You had a very special relationship with Gilda Radner. When when you first met Gilda, could you tell that she was going to be the star that she ended up becoming in comedy? Uh, you know, I couldn't tell anything. I, I was just so in over my head. I looked around the room. I saw a guy named John Belushi, another one named Aykroyd, and there was Gilda, you know, Lorraine Newman. And Gilda and I just gravitated toward each other. She made me laugh. I made her laugh. She was um, new to New York. She was born in Detroit, but she came by way of Toronto, where she was in Second City. I'm from Long Island. My dad uh, worked in New York, so this was my town. So we leaned on each other a little bit. Did I know she was going to be a big star? And we didn't even think in those terms back then when we first The first star of the show was Chevy because he did Weekend Update, and so he had four or five minutes or six minutes, whatever it was, every week where it was just him on camera using his real name. I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. <laughs> and um, But it soon became apparent to me that Gilda was so adorable and so funny that it was just a matter of time until she became embraced and uh, would be a big star. Back to the Friars Club for a second. I know that you were invited to join the Under 40 committee at one point when you first joined the Friars Club. Who was on that committee in those days? Uh, You know something? I remember being approached and asked about that. And with some guy I didn't know who just came up to me and said, you, you're young. I said, okay, thank you. He said, do you want to join uh, the under uh, 40s committee? And I said, oh, okay, sure. He says, I'll keep you posted. And then he approached me about a month later. He says, uh, you, you're young. I said, yeah, I know. We've been through this before. He said, do you want to join the other 50s, under 50s committee? And I said, well, what happened to the under 40s committee? And he just waved his hand like uh, it was no use. <laughs> that many people under 40, so they had to make it under 50, so they didn't have more members. I don't believe that that club 
ever materialized. I think it was a fleeting thought to have younger people, you know, be on a committee. And I know that as I got older, they did have, I'm wondering what they called it. It was what was essentially an under-40s committee. It wasn't called that. It was called something else. If I heard the name, I'd recognize it. But it's, it's a way of of infusing the place with new blood, new ideas, new sensibilities, you know. Uh, so this guy who approached me, this thought was a forerunner of what um, eventually became uh, whatever the name of the committee was that I couldn't re- – I can't remember the name of. I was reading your book, and I uh, could tell from the book you did not have the most pleasant experience working with Milton Berle on Saturday Night Live when he hosted the show. Would you encounter him at the Friars Club after that? And if so, uh, what was that like to see him after you had worked with him on SNL? You know, Milton was so egotistical and into himself and I think that the experience of hosting the show was just as horrible for him as it was for us. It was a nightmare and one of the very few shows that Lauren has never repeated, you know. Um, it's never been seen in any reruns. And I did run into him a few times afterwards, and it was just like a nodding thing. But I think that he either couldn't place me or didn't want to be able to place me, <laughs> you know, so... There was no discussion. There was no animus there, but uh, it wasn't the love fest, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> I could only imagine. Uh, I know that, uh, obviously, the, the Friars Club is known for its fabled celebrity roasts. Uh, did you write for some of the roasts over the years? And if so, what were some of the roasts that you got to write for, Alan? Oh, yeah, I, I didn't write for it once I, you know, once I started writing for television, but on my way up, I was writing for comedians who would be on those roasts. So I wrote for Morty Gunty when they were roasting, I want to say, Ed McMahon. I wrote for Freddie Roman when they were roasting, let's say, Howard Cosell, okay? I remember writing for Corbett Monica. Uh, I remember writing for Dick Capri, you know. So, um, But back then, the roasts were totally stacked. There were no women. This was before women were, you know, admitted to the club. And um, so this was like 1,200 people in the ballroom at the Statler Hilton or or the New York Hilton or uh, the Waldorf or something. And it was just incredibly vile, but funny. Funny as all hell. I read in your book you had a particularly funny line for uh, Pat Henry uh, when he roasted uh, Frank Sinatra uh, for the Friars Club. Do Do you remember the joke? Wow, wait a second. And I this is in my book? Yeah, Boy, it was in your book. Told. I can't even remember what I wrote it had in something my to book. do with uh, cement, uh, Sinatra and wearing cement shoes. And oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was about shoes and uh, cement shoes. That's right, with Frank Sinatra. Wow, I forgot all about that. I can't remember the exact wording, but that's what it was. Um, yeah, I did write, Pat Henry was a very funny man. Um, and... Uh, Yes, for Sinatra, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't an uh, afternoon roast. It was like a Saturday night. Um, uh, he was being honored. It was a roast, but people brought their wives. The women were uh, allowed there, right? And um, I remember that the jokes couldn't be too dirty because 
in deference to the women. Cement shoes jokes, those kinds of things were permissible. You had a pretty interesting encounter with uh, Frank Sinatra at a great uh, restaurant in Los Angeles. I believe it's called Mateo's, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yes. What what happened when you met Frank Sinatra at this restaurant? Well, you just blew the punchline, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, all right. Well, improve it for me. You're the comedy writer. We just moved to L.A. We only had two children at the time. We, we, We have three children. And we moved, and we wanted to go out to eat. We were very hungry. It was a long trip and starting to unpack and all of that. So we took the kids to Mateo's. Now, Mateo's, I had known from beforehand, it's on Westwood Boulevard. And um, it's basically a mob place, okay? Christmas lights are open all year, and um, it's a real fun place to go. But the bar that you pass through before you go into the dining room. I'd see Dean Martin, and I'd see uh, Joey Bishop, and I'd see Pat Henry, and I'd see those kind of people, like, hanging out there, and that's where they would hang. We went to the, uh, we sat at the first table past the bar, and um, our younger daughter, Lindsay, at the time was maybe three, four years old at the most, and she was being naughty at the table. She was kicking her, her older brother, Adam, who's um, uh, three years older. And Lindsay stopped doing it. Lindsay, don't hit him. Lindsay, stop kicking. Lindsay, if you don't behave, I'm going to send you away from the table. And that's exactly what happened the next time Lindsay did something naughty. She got sent from the table. And now we're eating. We start to eat. You know, and, 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 the, and the bar was just on the other side of a half wall. So it's not like we abandoned our child. But I'm, my head is down. I'm putting some soup into my mouth. And all of a sudden, I hear a familiar voice of an older man saying, this girl says you're giving her a hard time. <laughs> I look up. And it's Frank Sinatra holding little Lindsay's hand. <laughs> and I don't know him, but I go, Mr. Sinatra, let me tell you my side of the story. So I just told him what I told you about Lindsay being naughty. And he said to Lindsay, he says, Lindsay, is that true? And she says, yes. Lindsay, say you're sorry to your dad and your mom and to your brother. And then you can go back to the table, but you have to behave. And that's exactly what happened. (laughs) It's great. And the fact of the matter was, you know, what did Lindsay know? She went over, she was wandering away from the table as she was told to do. And this old man was being friendly. <laughs> no, it's Frank Sinatra. It was hilarious. Uh, you know, you've gotten to work with so many icons, uh, both uh, icons uh, that are known for being in front of the camera as well as uh, behind the scenes. And you worked with the legendary Herb Sargent during your time on Saturday Night Live, who before SNL had been a writer for Johnny Carson. He worked in radio. Uh, how did Herb Sargent, who was, I guess, in his 50s at that time, fit in with sort of the young rebels, if you will, of SNL that included yourself and your peer group? Well, that's a wonderful question. Herb, when we, when I, when we started the show, I was 25, and uh, everybody was my age, a year or two younger, a year or two older, okay? Herb was 54. Lorne himself was 31. And, but Herb uh, uh, had worked with Lorne before on a special 
that Lauren had produced. I, I want to say Lily Tomlin, but I could be wrong. But I think it was a Lily Tomlin special. We'd have to check that. And I gravitated towards her because he was like in charge of Weekend Update and being a writer for stand-ups in the Catskills, joke writing was my forte. You know, when the show first started, I later learned how to write sketches and scripts and whatever. So I gravitated towards her. In answer to your question, the beautiful thing about her was, given that he was 30 years older than the rest of us, it didn't mean anything because he was just as left of center when it came to his comedy, his politics, as we were. So he became a mentor to me and a lot of other people there. Um, an example of how to uh, sustain, in, in, you know, in show business, if you will, and keep your integrity. And um, I couldn't have had a better mentor. Another one was Buck Henry, who used to come in and host a lot. The two of them were my guiding lights as well. You've also had a close personal and professional relationship with Billy Crystal since you both started out working in the comedy clubs together, and Billy was kind enough to be the premier guest on this podcast. As his frequent collaborator, do you have, ever have any arguments with Billy about what you think is funny, what isn't funny? You know, what, what, what is the process of working with somebody like Billy Crystal as a writer? Well, it, well that's a good question. It depends on what you're writing. For something like 700 Sundays, right, which was his idea about his life, um, his life story, his family, uh, his dad in particular, people I never met. So when he asked me to collaborate with him on that show, um, I'm writing for people I didn't know. Now, look, I'm a Jew from Long Island, and he's a Jew from Long Island, so it wasn't exactly writing for somebody from Mars. You know, I knew the, I knew that family, you know, by way of my own. But since it was his story, I had to defer to his judgment. So if I would write something for him or one of the characters that he was portraying and he was uncomfortable with it, well, he won, you know, uh, because if he can't say something that he believes, if he can't say something with conviction, it's not going to work. I learned the same thing with Gilda, the same thing with Gary Shandling. You know, if you're writing with someone for that person, at best, you're vice president. OK, but if when Billy and I wrote a movie called Here Today, which the jumping off point was. An anecdote that I had told when I was a guest one time on uh, the David Letterman show, Billy called me up afterwards after seeing it, and he said, why don't we take that story you told and use that as a first scene in a movie, and let's see where the movie goes. So in that situation, it was inspired by something I had written, and it was, and it was published in a magazine, that story. And uh, it became a, a movie script called Here Today that Billy directed and started uh, with uh, Tiffany Haddish. There it was a little bit more, uh, let's put it this way, um, less of Billy's, you know, he started it. And so he had ultimately, he had veto power because if I wrote something he didn't want to say, and he as the director of it, you know, film is a director's medium. Right. They have final say. But the, the scales were a little bit more equal there, um, given that there was a whole cast, you know. And but if there is a disagreement, what you usually do in a case like that is 
all right, you don't like what I wrote. This is what the intention was. If you like the intention, let's rewrite the joke, but at least we address what the intention of it was. Because I think uh, the sensibility or that acknowledgement of that intention is valid. So, um, you know, there are ways to do it where one and one equals three. I don't know how television compares to film in terms of it being a writer's medium or not, but uh, I had Mike Reese on this show, who, of course, has uh, written for The Simpsons uh, basically since its inception. And he was telling me that he had applied for a job to write on a sitcom that you had created that was, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, I, as I understand it, was sort of centered around the Friars Club, called The Boys. Norm Crosby and Norman Fell were both in it. Uh, tell me a little bit about this show, and, and how did you come up with the idea for that series? Well, Bernie Brillstein had called me. I was producing The Shanling Show, and um, he called me, and he said, how about doing a show called The Boys, where a bunch of comics are just sitting around the table basically that table at the Friars that I had um, told you about. I said, I don't want to do that. Um, let me think about what I do want to do. And uh, being a Friar, I called him back, and I had said to him, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to make up a club, not unlike the Friars Club, and let's have uh, guys who have been playing cards forever with each other for 25, 30 years Let's go to that room, and then we can use other parts of the club. We can use the gym. We can use the dining. We can follow the guys home. But they know each other. That's the, you know, that's the central focal point. So I created a show called The Boys, and the cast was, uh, it was Norman Fell. Uh, Norm Crosby played himself, but you also had Lionel Stander. You also had Alan Garfield. This was an amazing group of wonderful, award-winning older actors. And, um, you know, look, uh, and I hired writers who had an affection for those older guys, and I hired two older guys, a team called uh, Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf. Bob Schiller was the father of Tom Schiller, who was a writer on SNL when I was there. And uh, they were they used to write the uh, I Love Lucy shows and some of the early Norman Lear shows. So oh, wow. they were older. So I thought that they would understand or have the sensibility to put words in those older people's mouths. And it was it, it, it was a lot of fun. It didn't catch on. Um, it was I think we did eight or ten, and and then it was canceled. But yeah, I, Mike Reese worked for me on the Shanling show. Right. Um, he, he and his partner, Al Jean, they were brought in by Shandling. I didn't know who they were. If I'm not mistaken, they were writing for the, were they writing for the Tonight Show? Yeah, they were writing and, for the Tonight Show, I believe, yeah. Yeah, and Gary Shandling used to guest host as a substitute for Carson when Carson was off. Carson would take vacations. There were two guys who were the regular guest hosts. One was Shandling, the other was Jay Leno. All right. And when Gary used to go during our hiatus weeks to go host the Tonight Show, I would go to the Tonight Show with him and write for him. And I met a bunch of the writers. But I don't remember Gene uh, and Reese from there, but Gary said, maybe we didn't all meet together. Maybe they're up in their offices. 
but he hired them for Shanling, and I loved those guys. Those guys were adorable, and they were really hardworking. And when Gary Shanling would host the Tonight Show, he was always incredible. And right from the beginning, Peter LaSalle, who had been the producer, sort of spotted him. Uh, But I think, if I'm not mistaken, Gary had turned down the permanent guest host position because he wanted to focus on its Gary Shanling show. And that's how Leno came in. Uh, What did you think of Gary straying from that guest host gig and uh, doing his own thing and eventually doing the Larry Sanders show? Uh, Gary would have died a horrible death if he was the permanent host. And that doesn't mean that he would not have succeeded, because I believe he would have succeeded no matter what he did, because he was funny and he was smart, okay? When I say he would have died a horrible death, he was smarter than that. He was very creative. When when we finished his Gary Shandling show, he was offered his own show on this new network called Fox. The show ultimately went to Joan Rivers, but Gary turned it down for a shitload of my last say shitload on the show. Yeah, sure, why uh, not? Yeah, a shitload of money, and I remember going out to dinner with him and him telling me about this offer, and I said, "Look, if you're going to take it, by all means, I'll do whatever I can to help you." But Gary, is this what you want to do? It seems to me that you're smart enough to. Uh, make fun of or do a parody of or a comedy version of how a show like that works. And it, eventually, and I'm not the only person who told them that, Joe. Gary used to speak to a lot of people about the same thing and, and, and ask for their advice. Ultimately, he did Larry Sanders. So, Obviously, Gary didn't have any regrets about turning it down, but I'm curious to know if you ever had any regrets when you turned down writing for Paul Lind on Hollywood Squares in favor of Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Because now to say it, it's such an absurdity that a thing like that would be a dilemma. But I was, you know, look, I was making $7 a joke writing for Catskill Guys. I was working in a delicatessen to supplement this great living that I was making. And as luck or fate would have it, the same week that I get offered this job on a new show that was going to premiere in a couple of months called Saturday Night Live, I get a a job offer to write the questions and bluff answers for Paul Lind on the Hollywood Squares. And for a minute you go, all right, now wait a second. This Hollywood Squares is going into its ninth season, primetime, network, right? A primetime network, West Coast, all which is a higher pay scale, right? And it had all these stars in the squares that had Las Vegas acts, they had their own shows. And so it was an, be an entree into show business, Whereas this Saturday Night Live thing, 11.30 to 1 on set, who's watching television? They're just angry people because they're not getting laid. They're watching television. <laughs> who's John Belushi? It's East Coast, late night. So it's a fraction of the, of the salary I would have made had I gone with the Hollywood Squares. And um, so, yeah, that dilemma lasted maybe a second. Okay, <laughs> But it, it was given a little bit of consideration. 
Well, and wisely so. And and listen, it all worked out for you in the end. Uh, you certainly made the right decision, as you did joining the Friars Club, because you have brought so much to the club over the years. And I could talk to you all day long. Before oh, no, no, this is fun. I love talking about this, Joe. You're a terrific interview. I love this conversation. I, I appreciate that. I, ho- I hope to have you back again, because it would be great. But uh, before I let you go, let me ask you, why do you think that the Friars Club has remained a source of fascination with the public after all these years. Why do you think people still want to see what's behind the doors of the Jerry Lewis Monastery? I think it's because it's a time capsule. You walk into that place, and on the wall, you see not only a history of show business, you see Americana, okay? You see Al Jolson sitting with Jimmy Durante, uh, sitting with Sophie Tucker. You, you see Mike Nichols and Brooke Shields. You see a, 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 this one picture that I always loved. There was a few comics like Red Buttons and a couple of that. But Senator John Glenn was there. Oh, oh, maybe wow. he was still the astronaut. I don't even know. So it was all these combinations of people. And I think it, it, it's drawn. What it is, it's, it's associated with a bygone era, a good time, and fun, you know. And um, who who doesn't want that in their lives? So um, it embodies all of those things. And um, so I think that uh, that's why there's a fascination of, you know, people first became familiar with the Friars Club if, if they heard about the roasts, you know. Okay, well, what is the Friars Club? And once I walked in there the first time, look, at one point, it was the mecca of, of comedy, the mecca, especially here in New York. You know, everybody went there. And um, uh, and through the years, as those people started, you know, dying and um, or, or moved to the West Coast, it got a little diluted, you know, but. Once again, you walk in and you just look at the history that's, you know, framed on the walls of this um, of this uh, monastery. They call it the monastery, but it's this townhouse that's got this rich uh, molded, uh, not moldy, molded wood and with these uh, stained glass uh, roofs. And uh, it's you just feel like it, it embraces you. It's this wonderful place that um, you only feel warmth from. And who wouldn't want that? You know, I I do hope uh, to preserve some of that history through this podcast and also bring new eyes to the club who maybe don't know the history behind it and uh, maybe a new generation of friars will want to join and uh, get involved with the club and people like you have inspired me to uh, become a member so all I can say is thank you Alan for making the time for me today and I hope to have you back again because I have so much more I could talk to you about all day long it's uh it's Anytime a treat you want, so I'll make my time to talk to you you're terrific Oh, I really appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. So, uh, Alan, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you soon. Anytime, Joe. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit friarsclub.com. We hope to see you there.